Welcome to The Fluent Show, a podcast all about loving, living and learning languages. Hello everyone, my name is Kirsten Cable from fluentlanguage.co.uk and as every week on this podcast we're going to talk about anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language. In today's podcast I have got a listener question for you. And I thought I'd bring an expert into the fold, onto the podcast. Um, my good friend Gareth is here. Shumai Gareth. Hi, Gareth. <laughs> Gareth is my language exchange partner in Welsh. And I promise you, coming up in the future, we are going to do a bilingual podcast at some point. But I'm not feeling quite ready today. So we'll talk a little bit of Welsh every now and then. But we're going to keep this in English for you all to enjoy as well. The question we are covering today is about language certificates. But before I head into the language certificates topic, there's obviously someone to give a quick shout out to, and that is our sponsor team. And Gareth, do you know who the sponsor is of the Fluent Show? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Tell it's, us. it's italki. Have you heard of italki? I thought it might be, but I didn't want to say the wrong brand or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've had experiences with italki as well. Tell us about those. I've had over 300 lessons on italki. Yes. Wowza. I am a student there of several languages. And I'm really into learning over the internet using Skype, for example, one-to-one -one with a teacher or an exchange partner. So it's a great platform. One-to-one mm, -one lessons are certainly better than a traditional classroom for most people. Uh, not lastly, because you don't have to travel. You can take lessons from anywhere. You can learn from home. You can learn from the pub garden. You can learn from, I don't know, your bathroom, whatever you want to do, as long as both sides are okay with it. I talk he's going to be there to help you find the ideal tutor. Gareth, how many languages have you studied on italki? Uh, it must be about four languages, or five or six, actually, to be honest. Five or six. And do you have any hot tips for anyone who is new to italki? How do you even start? Yes, I would say definitely try out several teachers. Some of them do have free taster sessions and find a couple, if possible, that you click with. I say a couple because sometimes people go away or they fall ill or the times that they're offering one week might not suit you. So it's great to have, and for a bit of variety, uh, two or three teachers that you can use. Excellent. So if you've never tried out italki before, the Link I'm going to give you will also get you 10 US dollars in italki credits because they've got their own currency like Facebook has now, right? So italki was there first. 10 US dollars in italki credits are yours with your first ever lesson purchase. No code required. Simply go to fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki. It's, a, it's not even a secret anymore. It's not even like a secret platform. It is the place to, to look for an online tutor. And none of us who are experienced language learners who, are, who have taught ourselves have done it without italki, have we? I don't think so, no. No. That's not much of an exaggeration. <laughs> so, Gareth, there's something that I know you are particularly interested in. You have been on the podcast before. I don't know whether you remember. I don't know whether our listeners remember. And that was a topic around being an advanced learner, being at an advanced level. So you quite like to study to a high level. Can you talk about that a little? That's right. Yes. Well, a few years ago, I decided that I wanted to take my German and my Russian 
up to the next level, if you like. I was already a good, solid, advanced intermediate with both languages, but I decided to go further. And I used iTalkai tutors a lot for that. But I also decided to take language exams as a way of giving me something to aim for. And I have a listener question about language exams. So I wanted to bring you on because you've, you've blogged about it a lot. So before we That's go right. into the question from Evan, we've got to give a shout out to your very, very thorough and ongoing blog articles. I'm forever in awe. I don't know where you find the time to share all what you're sharing. Uh, that was bad grammar. Share all that you're sharing. <laughs> so Gareth, where can people find you online, first of all? People can find me at my website and blog, as you so kindly said. It's howtogetfluent.com. But I'm also into YouTube in a big way. And my channel is Dr. Popkins, How to Get Fluent. So that's worth checking out too. Mm, Diane. Okay, let's go. The question I have this week is from Evan. And it's a very interesting one. He says... Following on to the should I do a master's in languages topic, which is an episode we've done in the past, and I'll put a little note in the show notes for you if you're listening. I have a feeling there are many, many listeners who are at an advanced C1, C2 level with a few of their languages, but just learn them for the heck of it. Or perhaps they grew up with the languages in their homes. These people probably never took an official test to get a certificate proving that they are C1, C2 level or something. Well, I was wondering if the cast that's you and me, Gareth, today, <laughs> could discuss why one might want to get this certificate or any other sort of qualification which would prove their language abilities. Is it worthwhile or isn't it? So it, do you think Evan is really talking about at these most advanced levels or generally uh, for people lower down the language mountain, if you like? I think there's, um, from from my tutoring experience and my my exam coaching, I've, I've not done much, but I've done bits. From my experience, it's been the B-levels where people have mm. gone for the exams. That's quite rare. But I, I have actually worked with someone who went for the C1 as well. Yes, yes. Well, um, I have taken B and C-level exams. And, uh, you know, taking exams, I think there are pros and cons. Now, of course, if you have to have the exam, because, for example, you want to pass a citizenship test, as is the case with the usually what we call the B1 or the lower beginner level, for example, in Germany or in Russia, for that matter, uh, you, you know, you don't have much choice in the matter. Or if you're studying a language at school, perhaps. But I'm going to, you know, work on the assumption that people are not in that position, but they're weighing up whether it makes sense otherwise uh, to do uh, these exams. You do hear quite a lot, actually, of arguments against taking the exams uh, among those of us who blog and vlog about language learning. Mm. Um, you know, people say, oh, they only make you good at passing exams. And what matters really is what you can actually do. You know, they'll say if you're going for a job, uh, then your actual ability, not just a piece of paper, is what's really going to count. Uh, the employer, you know, if he's interviewing you, you know, it's no good if you say you've got a certificate on your CV, but then you come in and you can't, you know, really use the language. So uh, certificates just aren't reliable. That's an interesting point yeah. of view. Other people say, you know, why waste the money and the time on doing it? Now, there's something in all these arguments, but as you'd expect, they're not the ones I go for at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I found that it's the way we think about exams and the way that um, exams, they come in lots of different 
variations. And it's interesting to hear that because that makes me think of, so people saying, you know, you're just basically learning towards it and then, and then that's it. That makes me think of something like, like a, a GCSE sort of a high school exam where really you're just supposed to study, you know, like it, and it just checks that you know some core phrases. Whereas the experience I have had taking IELTS and training people for the good exams has been very different because those exams are, I would say, more about what you can do with a language. And they, they conform to this CEFR, you know, the, um, what is it the common european frame of reference uh, which i'll also put in the show notes listeners if you've never heard of it but the cefr is essentially working with level descriptors so it doesn't say okay you know these 1500 words you're now a b1 student you know and now you're an intermediate student but instead it talks about things that you can do so uh, is there a difference you think between different types of exams S not necessarily. I think a well-designed school exams these days uh, are also aiming to test your ability to use the language and not just to jump through certain hopes. So I think a well-designed well -designed exam is a well-designed exam. Of course, in a school exam, there might be more emphasis, for example, on literature in some syllabuses. But I think uh, good, well-designed des exams will try to test as realistically as possible. And this is what I do like about them, that they give you a sort of objectivity across all the four skills, usually. Some exams, of course, just have a written element, but it, many exams will test your listening, your speaking, your reading and your writing skills. So they're giving you some sort of objective yardstick. Of course, it's never perfect. It never can be. But it's a useful yardstick from outside across all the four skills. And then, you know, this argument that uh, you're, just pr you're just learning for the test, as it were. Well, there's some truth in that. And you have to understand the name of the game. Tactics are important in getting to know the paper that you're going to be taking, for example, what the examiners might be looking for. But the fact is that those four skills are then transferable into other aspects of your language use. So I think, you know, that uh, we, we should really look at what we what exams can do for us, you know, what we can get out of them if we're not having to do them just because we have to pass a school test or we need them for a citizenship uh, you know, to tick a box and citizenship application. Mm. So which exams have you taken personally? I've taken a couple of Russian exams. So I took the TRKI, which is the test of Russian as a foreign language, the B2 exam. It's called the second certificate. And then I went on to take the third certificate, the C1 TRKI. And I've taken the Goethe Institute for German, the C1 exam as well. And then I've taken various other exams. I took an exam to show that I was good enough to study uh, through the medium of German in Heidelberg University a long time ago. And I've taken lower level exams, um, but those are the main ones that I've focused on so far. Any preferences between them? Any Anything that you particularly enjoyed or disliked about any of them? Uh, there are some issues around the Russian TRKI exams. The main problem at the advanced level is a lack of information. 
So there's no body equivalent to, there's no institution equivalent to the Goethe Institute or the Institut Francais or the British Council, which is setting or marketing the, and providing information about the exams. The Russian exams are based on legislation and degree, decrees from the Russian Ministry of Education. They're, they're now administered through different university centers, but it can be very difficult to get accurate information at the higher level. So I went into the C1 exam, not actually sure about the format of one of the questions, what exactly it was going to be. And there was no way really to check that out. Uh, and also with the Russian exams, there's some issues around the timing. The time pressure is, seems to be rather greater than in some of the other exams. So I think they need a bit of an overhaul, but I'm still a fan, I have to say. Mm. So you're personally a fan because you find that the exam gives you something objective to study for and it helps you focus what you are doing. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a great motivator, I think. Um, I certainly, I started preparing for my German C2 and for my Russian C2 sort of uh, the beginning of the year with the intention of sitting the exams in the summer. So that sorted out very clearly what I was going to be focused on in my language learning for the first half of the relevant years. And it, you know, meant I did a lot more focused study and work on the language than I would have done otherwise. Of course, I'm always trying to build Uh, output and passive input in my languages into my life, but actually getting down and taking my game apart, doing some really focused work, it wouldn't have happened to the same degree if I didn't know I'd got those exams coming up. Mm. You know, uh, I, I had to register for them. You've got to pay to take them as well, which concentrates the mind. So for me, they work really well for motivation, but not everybody's going to find that. But, you know, know yourself... And if that is something that you think might work for you, then do consider whether an, an exam, taking an exam, might be a useful tool, and it's only that, you know, uh, to take you further forward with your language learning. Mm. That's, a, that's certainly the case for an exam. So if you're an independent adult learner and you don't need it, like Evan said in his question, you you get a certificate proving that you are at a level which objectively some assessor has or you know a qualified assessor has specified but you know you that is that is essentially what you're getting but it can really focus your studies it can really give you a motivational boost and it can kind of give you a bit of a a yardstick or just a sense of where you are at so every now and then I, I think it it can be really good I personally haven't taken any exams since I've become an adult tutor. I took IELTS. I took IELTS in 2003. There you go. Um, I took IELTS in 2003 because my university asked for it. And that is essentially since then I have had a degree qualification from a British university, which is always going to serve as proof that I speak English. And then I don't really need to do it anymore for the formalities of life. But that is the other reason to take an exam. However, I have downloaded the I don't know how to pronounce it, the UJEC, the W-J-E-C, which is the Welsh Exam yeah. Council. <laughs> I have downloaded all of their materials for the GCSE, so I know that I could pass a Welsh GCSE. Yes, 
Yeah, and they do offer it's the Welsh Joint Education Committee, WJEC. And they offer exams for adults as well, because, of course, the GCSE is the age 16 exam Mm -hmm. in the the UK. So for kids at high school, but uh, they also do exams uh, up to level B2. For some reason, there's no exam above that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they do do uh, those exams for adults as well. And they've got a very good website for those of you who are learning Welsh with, for example, uh, videos of the oral exams so you can get a sense of what it's like and a sort of level uh, and I think they have that on well, they do have that on the Goethe Institute site as well they do yeah these are the sort of things you really would be great to have for the Russian exams but there's nobody providing that sort of thing at the moment mm. so far as I can see so this is Perhaps a third reason that I want to share. So you certainly have signing up for an exam to motivate you, to give you a sort of date, to give you something to focus your studies. That is that is the main reason really why as a self-guided learner, you might still want to sign up for an exam. Then, of course, there's all the formalities that it can help you with. And you may want to just be able to put something really cool on your CV, although it's unlikely that your employer actually knows the difference between you pretending to be great and you actually proving that you're great at a language, but that's a different story. And the third point I would I would add to that is that I've actually found with the Welsh exam materials that I downloaded, I tend to underestimate what I can or could do in the Welsh language. I tend to think I'm fairly rubbish, probably um, Gareth too much because I talk to Gareth too much because <laughs> you're great, Gareth. But it's it's actually quite reassuring to download exam materials, work through them and realize there's nothing here that, that I don't know or there's nothing here that I couldn't handle. So, Gareth, I want to ask you, I want to bring a few counter arguments to you. Mm-hmm. The first one that I feel is is that that happens when you are an independent language learner, it's to do with that objective sense of level. And since the CEFR level, sort of this A1 to C2 level thing, has become more and more, has gone into more and more into discourse. You know, you know it's people know roughly what you're talking about. I feel that there there is a risk, an increasing risk, that people become really obsessed with the level and what level they are at and this sort of sense of leveling out or leveling up or, you know, you, you're essentially working for a result only. Um, and I wonder whether the existence of exams in this whole sphere can can add to that and can actually give us something give us a negative result of language learning, which is that you you focus away from what you want to use it for and you become too worried or obsessed about what level you're at. What do you think? I think there's something in that. Um, that's why I always like to use the exams just as part of my language journey. And yeah, we've all got to be very clear about what we want the language for. If you're mainly interested in speaking, a conversational level, then why do you necessarily need this exam if not for the motivational aspects that I mentioned? So yes, I would say keep the exams in their place. Don't let them become an end in and of themselves, unless that's what you just want to do. Um, but, you know, um, you do need, having said that, 
to develop all four skills if you want to get really good in the language. Mm -hmm. So if your aim is to be a really good conversationalist in a language at an advanced level, sophisticated conversations and so on, it's pretty likely that you're going to want to be able to read well and you're going to need to read well in the language. You're going to be able to want, you know, writing helps you with accuracy as well and feeds back into how you speak. So particularly at the higher levels, there's something to be said for training up all four skills and exams can be a way, again, not the only way and not a necessary way, but of doing that, I think. Um, so, you know, just keep them in their place. I would agree with that, that the, the four core skills is such a listeners you know you know like i've i've done a whole book about this and the language habit toolkit is centered around the the four core skills or not centered around it but it's it's an important part and i keep repeating this uh because it is so significant that listening reading speaking and writing are the four core skills and if you want to get good at any one of them even if you just want to be a sophisticated speaker just like gareth says you still got you still got to work out on your writing because that is where you work on expressing yourself with some depths depth depth which I cannot pronounce <laughs> with some you know with some oomph let's say and that's how you can get out of pub conversations drunken conversations if that's what you want to do that's fine so it's really it's like you say the the reason those exams are structured in that way is actually I think, or like the the benefit of the exams being structured in that way is actually very high. And I believe that it does focus on measuring what you can do rather than just what you've memorized. If you are centering exam, uh, centering an exam all around listening, speaking, reading, and writing skills, and giving specific situations and giving specific ways of assessing those skills rather than making an exam just about grammar making an exam where you do a lot of fill in the gap exercises or making an exam where perhaps you you just do a vocab test like what we did in school was was we just got vocab assessed it was like human memorize and that is it's good that those exams aren't structured in that way so evan if you've never looked inside any of those exams that is certainly a, a good reason to to look at it because it gives you a sense of a thorough 360 view of that language level something that to go back to evan's question if i understood correctly he was t also mentioning people who are perhaps native speakers of a language almost or who have been living in a country for a long time and have got to a high level without taking an exam and he was saying does it make sense for them to take the exam at that stage? Well, maybe there's a parallel there with what you were saying about your own experiences, that uh, do you really, once you've done a degree in the language, need the exam? I'm an, a case in point, actually, with my Welsh, because I've never done any exams in Welsh at all. But I ended up uh, teaching university level as an assistant professor, Russian history in Aberystwyth through the medium of Welsh. And I've done written articles in Welsh and appeared on Welsh media talking about Russia. And I've trained as a Welsh to ad for adults teacher. Mm -hmm. But I never actually took any formal qualification in Welsh. 
do I really need to do that? Well, as I mentioned, as it happened, there aren't any sea level qualifications in Welsh. Yeah, but, but you wouldn't have to take one now to prove that you're at sea level. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. Evan, I'm thinking, you know, maybe that was what you were driving at partly. If you're perhaps in that position yourself, that you're a sort of a heritage speaker of a language, that's to say you've got it from one parent or one grandparent, but as a sort of second language to the main language in your life, or if you've been living abroad using a language as a, um, a migrant, for example, for many years or many decades, uh, do an exam if that's something that you think you would enjoy or you can see a definite use for, but don't feel somehow that you need to do it from some sense of insecurity. You'd be much better addressing that or the particular aspects where you feel a bit weaker in the language directly, for example, by working on written skills, for example, which you could do again with a teacher or reading a lot more. Again, you could do these things. It doesn't necessarily have to be through the exam route. Mm. And this is where where I think we, we move quite nicely onto my last question, which was on my last counter argument, which is, oh, to what extent are unneeded language exams a money-making racket? Mm. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, I don't know. Is the answer. <laughs> I have no clear uh, sense of uh, the scale. I mean, the language business is a big business. And as with all options for spending money, it can be better or less effectively spent. I would say we have to approach it from the uh, from our side, from the side of the consumer, mm -hmm. and don't do it if you don't feel that you really are going to get your money's worth for it. And that's going to be an individual question. Mm -hmm. Now, when I took my Russian exams here in London, there are a couple of places you can do them. I can't remember the exact amount. It was something like 200, 250 pounds. And I think for the Goethe exams, again, it was around the 300 euro mark. This that is, is massively, that's more than I would have thought. Yes. Uh, for It may be less for the lower level exams, perhaps mm. because they're sort of economies of scale. Uh, but you do need to factor that in. And uh, whether that is racketeering or uh, <laughs> legitimate covering of costs plus a fair profit, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So it comes back to, is it worth it for you? And sometimes when you're investing in your own development, the fact that you're getting out your wallet is actually, you know, about your own commitment and the seriousness with which you are taking the exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, I say this sometimes about people signing up for courses or purchasing materials, that often you can get similar materials for free. But if you've actually had to make this financial commitment, that's really a sign to yourself almost that you're serious about the task in hand. So it, it can make some uh, sort of psychological and motivational sense again, even if it's not necessarily strictly a rational economic move. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a very, that's a very good point. I think the only note of care I really have around language exams is not around you doing it for your personal 
reasons or you know if you really not in a bad way but doing it for your ego essentially so because you want to feel good and you want that reassurance and that is a perfectly legit thing to to want the only note of care i would have really is around if you are applying for university in a foreign country or maybe you have some kind of visa application to sort out or really there's an admin reason that you think a language exam will benefit you do make sure please please make sure you know with something like goethe or the welsh joint exam council i think it is you you have a very official administrator in the uk there's there's edexcel as well and so you know ielts and toefl so make sure you go for a household name don't and I, i'm saying this as somebody who used to work in university admissions don't get what will get called a swimming certificate in the end do make sure you're getting something really solid that has a good rec reputation in particular ensure that you check with whoever is meant to accept that exam, that this is actually acceptable to them. Because there are, especially in the area of English teaching and English learning, you know, for us, for Gareth as an English native speaker, for me as somebody who, you know, has the UK, the UK degree, we don't worry about that anymore. But proving your English skills is significantly important in many, many workplaces. And there are so many exams that are perhaps even quality exams, but that don't, that haven't done the work around the reputation, haven't done the work around making universities familiar with them. And universities may not want to accept them simply because they get offered too many. So unfortunately, in that field, you can't go indie, you kind of have to go mainstream as long as you're going for admin. And that is the only note of caution I would give you around that. That's a fair point. And I wrote a blog post called, I think, what German exam is best, looking mm -hmm, at the mm -hmm. same thing with the German exams, where there are numerous different exams about the university the level to go in and study university, and they're not all accepted or different levels will or will not be accepted. So there's the Goethe ones, there's the Telk ones, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but you need to really check with the institution which has a language requirement uh, and check also the up-to-date situation, not how it was for your friend three years ago or yeah. something like that, <laughs> because it does change too. Definitely. So that's our only note of caution. Evan, I hope we have done a, a very good discussion around answering your question and sort of helping you think through exams and let us know perhaps in a post in the future. I know you're in the Fluent Language Learners Facebook group. Let us know in the future whether you did go for the language exam or whether you decided not to do it or friends of yours. So listeners, let us know as well if you are going to take a language exam or if you are not or whether this discussion helped focus your mind a little bit. I've got one more request for you listeners. If you would, perhaps if you have Instagram or you've got any social media or perhaps you just want to email me, take a picture, perhaps take a selfie of yourself listening to The Fluent Show. A few listeners have done this recently and I was just over the moon it made me so happy and i would love to see more of you fluent fam out there in the in the world sharing where you listen it it is honestly one of the loveliest things it's really really great and it shows other people that you are listening to the fluent show so it helps the fluent show as well especially if you've already reviewed or you don't know how to review us so it's too much of a hassle selfie reviewers do it it's so much fun thank you so so much first of all to gareth who you can find at gareth 
howtogetfluent.com. That's right, yes. And of course, thank you to you all for listening. You can find me on Twitter. I am at The Fluent Show. And you can find me on Instagram, where you can simply use the hashtag The Fluent Show and I'll come and find you, especially with your selfies. Or you can tag me. I am Kirsten, K-E-R-S-T-I-N underscore fluent. And the new email address that my website is using is hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk. That's it from me. And now we do our usual sign off. So Gareth, it's goodbye from Gareth. Bye-bye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Hoil. Thank you for listening to The Fluent Show. Don't forget that you can send us your comments and questions to be answered on the show to Kirsten, that's K-E-R-S-T-I-N, at fluentlanguage.co.uk. Or you can find us on Twitter at The Fluent Show. We're always so excited to hear from you. We read every message. Don't forget to review us. See you next week.